0: This is a Handshake Agency Podcast.
1: Welcome to Episode 3 of Rewind's trip back 20 years to the birth of Significate's acclaimed third album, Echolalia. I'm your host, Steve Bell. We're pretty much halfway through the story now, so if you haven't checked out the first two episodes yet, we recommend you hit them first before diving in here so far we've followed something for kate's formation in melbourne in the mid-90s through all of their early successes then the writing troubles leading into album number three, and how this was resolved by a hastily convened band trip to Thailand. Having finally come up with a batch of songs considered strong enough to carry the Summificate moniker, they've recruited rising US producer Trina Shoemaker and brought her down to Australia. And for the Echolalia sessions, everyone is assembled at Mangrove Studios on the central New South Wales coast, owned by InXS bassist Gary Beers. Paul Dempsey remembers the idyllic setup being perfect for the Echolalia sessions.
0: Yeah, the studio was just stunning. Like, a, a really um, incredibly, like, well-equipped studio, great recording rooms, great equipment, and just in a stunningly beautiful location about it is, uh, on the central coast. It was about an hour north of Sydney near um, Gosford. But, but, like, up in the hills, you know, you're looking out over... Uh, state forest and animals everywhere and you know no traffic no no distractions no one dropping in Um, we were really isolated Um, so we just got to like totally immerse ourselves in in what we were doing
1: american producer trina shoemaker was on her first trip to australia for the echolalia sessions and while she found the studio set up completely to her liking some of our wildlife took a little bit of getting used to
2: Mangrove was absolutely fantastic. You know, it's a little odd because I had never been to Australia before and I found myself in Australia and um, was whisked pretty quickly after rehearsals, you know, into went went to Melbourne into a rehearsal room and then into a recording studio and sat there at the SSL board. And then it occurs to you, I really could be anywhere in the world. This shit all looks exactly the same because of course all studios... You know, in, in some way or other are the same and then i would look out though they had these wonderful windows above the tape bay big wide windows um you know i looked over and there's this i guess it was maybe a magpie because it was a big black and white bird but it was like the size of a raven it was huge <laughs> it had landed you know and so that that's when i i was like jesus this is australia um you know of course you know i was like everyone in an in-access fan so I was um honored to be in Gary Beer's studio um, it was ma- maintained phenomenally Blair our assistant was brilliant the accommodations were gorgeous everything about it was like a paradise vacation until until you go for a little walk at night from the studio over to your you know cottage or wherever it is you know they had Little cottages, as well as a, a band house, but I was in a producer's cottage, and um, very nearly walked through what was the biggest spider web I've ever seen in my life. Oh. And it, and it as if it was like a like a like a Michael Jackson video for <laughs> for, for like Thriller, where it, it couldn't be real. This has got to be early eighties video fake, right? Because <laughs> spiders don't make that big of filament things like this looks like rope <laughs> so I, I survived that and then later in the night a few days later um I felt like Clint might have been like messing with me or somebody was tr- having a go because it seemed like somebody was beating on the side of my little house and I got really scared like there might be like you know the odd serial killer who turns up in Australia <laughs> and happens upon Gary Beer's studio but I guess it was a, um, a wallaby, <laughs> a, a small kangaroo um, had come around and just decided to, like, bang into the building a few times. So those moments took me from this great studio, which truly could have been in L.A. or New York, um, and, and set me in Australia so that the setting was, was correct.
1: In Clint's view, it wasn't just the beautiful surroundings, but also the people associated with Mangrove Studios that made the Echolalia session such a fun time
3: the whole the whole process was super smooth because also you know you've got to not just talking about trainer there was a guy called matt Lovell who was engineering engineering the um session who um who i'd never met before and have struck up you know we struck up a great friendship and have become you know best mates um ever since Blair the assistant he was awesome he'd never really done a studio session before i think he might have done one or two and he was a big part of the mix as well and and you know so i'd spend a lot of time with those guys while Paul was deep in with Trainer, and then Gary um Gary Beers from an accessory studio was you know he lived on the same property so he'd pop in every now and again so you you'd chat to him and then his kids would pop in and it was just like was one of those I'd get I'd speak to a lot of these guys because once the drums are done you know apart from going in and listening every day you're still you know you're still your opinions obviously still heard but it's all these other characters that are a part of the studio and a, and a part of the area, and that I think that that makes the whole experience um, even more just a bigger thing than just recording a record with the guys, because you have yeah you've got this family you live on the property, you know, and it so happens that you know he's playing one of the biggest Australian bands going around, and he's a lovely dude. And they talk to him, and then you talk yeah his wife would come in and you chat to them, but it was it was it was a really it was a really amazing experience and it did, it did feel like something was going to happen, like it did start to feel the way the record label would talk when they would come up. You did think, oh, shit, we're on the cusp of something here that could go well.
1: The head of something for Kate's label, Murmur, John O'Donnell, does indeed recall that things seemed to be going swimmingly on his regular visits to the sessions.
4: It um, was an idyllic location and Gary had his house there and his studio there and so it was a, a, it was a living house he and his family lived in um, off and on because he was off doing in excess business a lot. But um, the studio was, you know, located right next door to his home. Um, and so he's thanked on the album for um, the various gear that he had literally lying around. I think tons of basses and lots and lots of other musical instruments that the band um, were allowed to access and use, which was fantastic. Um, and I know Chris Joe and you from Silverchair. It was kind, it's kind of halfway between Sydney and Newcastle, um, just near Gosford. And um, so Chris Joe and you lent a couple of bases and maybe a guitar or two um, to the band at that time. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it was an idyllic location because it's a live-in studio. And so, you know, the band could get away from everything in their lives in Melbourne, come up to um, Mangrove and make this record in a, a pretty idyllic location um, and just be free of everything. Um, so I went up a few times, um, but you know, I, I wasn't needed, I was just going up there for fun to check in. Um you know, there wasn't a lot of heavy a and needed with something for Kate ever, um, but certainly not on this record.
1: Do you remember the vibe of the sessions? Were they going along smoothly? or
4: Yeah, they were. I think the vibe was really good. They'd, um, I don't know where they'd done pre-production with Trina. Um, they probably only had done a couple of days and maybe they did it up at Mangrove. I forget about that. Be interesting to ask Paul that but um yeah they were they were in great spirits they were already getting along well so my memory of that session was not that it was carefree but it was um and it would have been reasonably tight time-wise but you know everyone was in good spirits it's a really great location too it's got a little a little kind of small um pond or lake um there's hammocks um you know the weather's never terrible so um yeah no it was good
1: working in a studio owned by a world-renowned bassist stephanie recalls having a smorgasbord of gear at her disposal but also that proceedings were taken seriously to the point that they knocked back the chance to wine and dine with a pretty high profile peer
5: I remember um you know Gary Beers owned the studio from InXS um at that stage and um he'd just pop over with a you know a 1950s bass for me to use you know he'd sort of he'd bring over a selection from the house he'd be like oh Steph do you want to use this 57p bass that I got like I'd be like sure <laughs> you know, and, and then you go come and have a look and you know go to his place and see all the you know Collection of fifty bases from each year from nineteen fifty six onwards, um, and you know he he just come over with all these goodies all the time, and he was so lovely and and, and inviting. His whole family were amazing. His kids, who who we still you know uh, are friendly with today, um, and uh, it was such a relaxing, beautiful place to make a record. Um, and you know just even the the assistant engineers um, Blair and Matt were both fantastic people who we're still good friends with now, um, as well. So, um, a really fun record, certainly very, um, long hours. Trina liked to, to work really long hours. Um, in fact, I think one time we were working and Bruce Springsteen came to town and he invited us all to come hang out and go to his show. And Trina said, no, (laughs) she was like, no, we haven't finished the mix. You're not going. (laughs) I'm not sure we've forgiven her for that yet. But, um, yeah, uh, it was really fun and lo- lots of hard work and um, but, but really good memories.
1: I'm staggered that they couldn't find time for dinner with the boss, but album sessions are usually pretty labour-intensive proceedings. Trina admits being a pretty hard taskmaster as well but reckons that she puts in longer hours than anyone simply because she loves being in the studio.
2: 20 years have passed. And so I've changed as a producer. Um, You know, I was younger then and greener. And so I think that I felt that there it was probably required to have some kind of agenda, some kind of um, standard for which we were trying to reach. Um, But but even my desire to conform to that norm, um, my creativity completely just crushed it so that no matter what, I go in so open-minded because I don't have another way of being. Everything, once you walk into a studio is a magical, see, it's a fantasy land to me. I'm so into the gear and I'm so emotionally attached to the equipment that the band, they're almost just the creators of the sound that I need to do what I wanna do. Um, And I don't put as much, focus on the band as i do their songs and so once we're in the studio i can't control my imagination you know i can't control the desire to serve the song so you can't go wrong with that um if you're not going to get out of that chair for 13 hours because i never left my chair i didn't take dinner breaks i don't go anywhere i sit in that chair or run into the studio and work the entire tracking day nonstop. Just live it in the song. I know that sounds kind of like cliche, but it's, a tr- it's the truth. The
1: band, Paul in particular, were meticulously prepared for the sessions with reams of notes about what they wanted in terms of all facets of production. Ultimately, the album is credited with being produced by Trina Shoemaker and something for Kate. But in her eyes, that didn't diminish her studio responsibilities in the slightest.
2: Well, the band should expect me to do everything because that's my job. To do everything that has to do with recording the the record, uh, and then I also expect them equally um, con- con- conterminously to do everything like perform, sing beautifully for me, play with an outrageous pocket, listen to yourselves and listen to me. So you know where they where I will sit in my chair and do every darn thing, they will also sit with their instruments and do every darn thing. So it's an equal expectation of extremely um, uninterrupted focus.
1: It seems like from everyone I've spoken to, it was a fun, fun time. Hard work too, obviously, but was enjoyable.
2: Very enjoyable. Um, You know, again, we weren't in a situation where we had any, um, uh, members of the band that either had like alcohol or drug problems that were or had like, I'm an asshole problems that, you know, because you get that in bands where, you know, it's nobody's fault, but there's an immature person who, you know, acts up and is hard to be around, but everybody still kind of likes them, but sort of, you know, and hopefully they're good. So that's why they're there. There was none of that. These were graceful, intelligent, wildly funny people. you know, and I'm I'm not a um, a wild you know partying let's go out and get hammered person either, and I wasn't then. So we all it was really kind of cerebral, but also incredibly stupid. It was like that <laughs> this the, the stupidity had to equal the 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 drain that all of these minds. I'm not trying to put us in some kind of like intellectual you know stratosphere, but we were all readers and thinkers, and you know, contemplators. And so, we we were always really thinking. So then, when it was time to not think, we had to be extremely stupid. And then we usually counted on Clint to do something extremely stupid to have us laughing for three hours.
1: Despite his light-hearted exterior, Clint admits finding the Echolalia sessions pretty tough at the outset because, despite all of his band's successes at the time. He was still racked by self-doubt about both his abilities and role in the band. But he explains that in Trina, he found the perfect ally to help him beat this imposter syndrome.
3: For years and years, I don't think, maybe it was even after, I, I doubt, because I was like, am I going to get kicked out of the band? Am I good enough? Like, I, I always doubted myself as a musician and drummer, and, you know, I'm a bit more confident with knowing what I can do these days. But back then, I was really unsure of, you know, my instrument. And Paul being the like Paul was it's very hard to read back then and we've since talked about it and it's like no I never doubted you for a second like it's just the way I am and I always have this fear because Paul's an, you know, he's an amazing musician in of every instrument you know drums and everything and so I always had this complete fear uh, and never never had that confidence in my instrument and Trina was just awesome she um being a producer and being her job is is partly is getting that confidence and, and uh and you know getting your confidence up and you know there's a reason why bands you don't have to be the best player but there's to to, to be able to play the songs but there's a way why all bands you know the three sync together well like and I, it took me a long while to realize that and I think she made me realize that I think she mentioned back in the day it was Levon on helm she's like Oh, you playing like Levon on helm I'm like oh I didn't know much about the band or anything back then and like, oh, she goes, yeah, you just do this thing where you go around and you just manage to somehow fall and land at the right time. That's <laughs> like, but it's kind of off, but it's not perfect. And, you know, and, and then sort of started talking to me about the band and, yeah, and talking about how you don't have to be a perfect player. It's just the perfect combination of the right musicians together, which create the song. And I think it kind of clicked for me. I was like, okay, that's, you know, something for Kate would be a completely different band with a different drummer. Um, and... Yeah, she was just great for my confidence. Great for you know, and that, that's their job. You know, once that's funny. Once the drums are done, you know, you, you, she moves on to the staff or whoever. It's like you, <laughs> we still have that relationship, but you kind of you're done. Your parts are down. Right, let's let's concentrate on staff now. But I remember that week; it was the best. Like you know, Trina just such an amazing communicator and a great person, and a great person for your confidence. Like I said, not just about the sounds, not just about pulling that. She's got to mediate between the band. She's got to, you know, they've got a big job producers um, to do, and that's why she was amazing. I think that's why we went with her on the, on the record after that the official fiction as well, because we all had such a great experience. But um, I look back on that time so fondly about, about working with her and how lucky we were to actually work with her and to take a risk, to fly a producer out from the States, to go to this amazing, Um, studio in the middle of New South Wales, and everything just aligned. Everything worked really well and, yeah, really good experience.
1: Trina, for her part, remembers giving Clint some pre left-field advice to help get him through the doldrums.
2: You know, again, it's been 20 years, and so many, many records, many life events, and so I listened to the record in full in my studio, my mix room, um, really for the first time in... Know 20 years, I would ref it, you know, listen to a piece of a song here or there if I wanted to remember a certain sonic, you know, place that I had been. But and I was blown away by how damn good that record is, how vibrant, and specifically how dope Clint's snare sound is. We killed it, and I don't know how we did that, but. That snare drum sounds, and so does the kick drum. It was a great drum room, but we got this amazing drum sound. And now 20 years later, I'm slightly coveting it. Um, it's beautiful. And Clint is a great drummer. Yeah, he had insecurities because he was young and being the drummer is kind of the hardest job there. Um, he, had a gr- he had a great feel, and I don't think that he understood how to trust that yet. You know, and he fucked up, sorry. he. Uh, he screwed it up, you know, just like yeah, that. the young men will. But he was so open to understanding. I must have said a hundred times, everything is groove and how it feels. And, you know, you when you're on, it's sexy and it's fantastic and it's deep. And so but sometimes you're not. But you feel it. I will yell out in in joy when you're in it. And then you can start to recognize, oh, that is what she's talking about. Not sticking to the click. Anybody can play to a click track. It's like, forget the click. How does it feel inside your, okay, I'm gonna say it. In your ball sack, you're sitting on the drum throne. The drums are pounding around you. Surely when it feels incredibly groovy That goes into your ball sack, doesn't it? I want it to. (laughs) And, we, you know, I was able to talk to him like that, and I think that relaxed him.
1: Casting her mind back over the Echolalia sessions, Trina remembers that Clint wasn't the only person she had to help overcome slight insecurities.
2: Old Pictures has always been my favourite song on the record, and it remains my favourite song. That was one of the hardest ones to get to feel right because it has, the chorus has pushes in it the way that it drops into the chorus is like a drop beat. And it's difficult to explain. You just, you listen to it again at some point and you'll you'll be like, oh yeah, shit, that sounds hard. So, you know, not just having, you know, Clint and Steph understand that, they did, they rehearsed it, but to really feel it the way Paul needed it to drop into that downbeat of the chorus, which is again, like a drop beat in the first place, we struggled for that and now when I hear it I'm so proud of it but these pages fly stand up was a tough mix Um, we got the track pretty easily but I was struggling getting a mix on that because I mixed it right there at Mangrove and then Steph walked in and I mean again she was you know she's a great bass player but she had some insecurities too mainly that Paul was always telling her what to play and I was like who cares he wrote the song let him tell you what to play and then play it really cool And she started to really own not just, you know, the bass, but her way of playing. It's like, it doesn't matter if Paul says play, it's how do you interpret that and make that you. And so she started to embrace that. But anyway, so she walked in and I was like, I don't know, I'm not kidding. And she's like, it needs more bass, trainer. I was (laughs) like, it needs more bass. And I cranked the bass up and boom, Jerry happened. Jerry Stone. Back the curtains
6: and let some light in. Quit your job because you hate it and it's wasting you.
1: For her part, has nothing but praise for Trina's work on Echolalia, noting particularly the open channels of communication and how positive this was.
5: In terms of why we worked with her. Um, uh, as a person, very open and easy to get along with. And you know, we could be very upfront about how we felt about the songs and about the sounds we were getting. And there was it was, you know, we were it was a good um combination of personalities that you could be honest and not sort of play any kind of passive-aggressive games or, you know, be kind of hoping that, you know, um, you might be able to get a chance to say your opinion or, you know, it was all just, this is, you know, we're making a record together and everybody just say what you think.
1: Paul also remembers the Echolalia sessions running smoothly with only some pretty standard minor recording issues popping up.
7: Yeah,
0: it was great. I mean, I don't have any memories of any... You know, uh, it was a really fun time, you know. Um, I mean, there's always, you know, there's always a bit of creative, uh, you know, tug of war sometimes over over a particular decision about, you know, this guitar tone or that guitar tone. But when the overwhelming feeling is that, you know, we're all having a great time because we're, you know, we're happy with the songs we've got and we're going to make a really good sounding record, it was just, it was really optimistic, and really positive and just a really great energy. And not just, you know, it was us and Trina, but then there was also, um, Matt Lovell, the assistant engineer and, um, uh, another guy, uh, Blair, who worked in the studio as well. So what's that? There were six of us in there. Um, and the studio was owned at the time by Gary Beers from excess who lived kind of just down the, you know, in his, his house was just sort of over the other side of the garden and he'd drop in with his kids and um, it was just a really nice time.
1: Back at the Sony offices, then a and guy Craig Matheson remembers being privy to the Echolalia mixes as they began filtering through and being blown away by what he heard.
8: I think I heard maybe, I would hear songs and you'd sort of be like, that's good. Wow, okay, you got that one too. Oh, you got that one. And then it's like. I remember, I remember hearing "You Only Hide" was very near the end, maybe one of the last songs written. Um, but I was just sort of wowed from song to song. I mean, really, he's <laughs> like, "Well, I've got this thing stunt show, might be good to open the record." It's like, "Yeah, I think you're right." You know, um, golly, I'm just trying to think back. Um, Jerry, stand up. I mean, you know, old pictures. I mean, it kind of like it was kind of it filled up really fast. It's like, you know. that's kind of like, you know, even as a joke, I'm like, are you just going to do some filler? You know, where's the filler? You know, take it easy, dude. Just knock out a couple for the, you know, tracks nine, 10 and 11, then put a nice track at 12 to finish and you're done. But you know, that's obviously not going to be. And you know, so I just kept filling up. I'm trying to think, I think I might've heard a version roughly sequenced prior to, prior to mastering. Um, so I remember we were both listening, Paul and I were both listening to the Hans Zimmer soundtrack for the film The Thin Red Line, which is just incredible, like the best thing Hans Zimmer's ever done. And, you know, that was, you know, in Paul's incredible ears, he could hear things in that sort of modern classical record that he wanted for the for the mastering of of Echolalia, for example. So um, but that was around that that period you know, getting ready to really finish it, that it started coming together as a record and, you know, it could be just, I had a very nice office. I didn't, not sure I always did much in it, but, you know, some of the best things I did was just shut the door and, and play the mixes of Lalia um, on repeat and just sort of, you know, marvel at what, what was happening.
1: Murmurhead John O'Donnell also remembers realising that Lalia was going to be a special collection when he started to hear completed songs come through as they were finished.
4: I think it was Monsters, really. That's, you know, and it's funny looking back on the record. I think that's the obvious standout. Um, you know, the second single was Three Dimensions. The third single was 20 Years, which is, you know, they're amazing songs. I love 20 Years in particular. And and Say Something was song number four. But, but it was really Monsters that we all knew we had something special when we heard that song. And... Um, And yet, you know, we knew that the whole album was really special. Another one in particular, and I remember how excited the band was when they recorded You Only Hide, Um, you know, a big, beautiful love song. Um, And um, Paul, I think he was, I think it might have been the last song they tracked, and um, he drove back, he and Steph drove back from mangrove studios and they'd parked their car outside my house in sydney um i think was the story but um anyway they came back and it was a sunday night at about 10 o'clock and they came into our house and i had three young kids (laughs) but they um they were just so excited by this song you only hide and had to play it to me and you know they were just busting. They, you know, they knew they'd recorded something really special and very important to them. Hopefully I reacted appropriately, but yeah, <laughs> it blew me away. And, um, and there was a song on um, uh, The Astronaut on Beautiful Sharks, and that was an incredible ballad um, and an incredible love song. And, um, and I remember, I think Paul really excited that he'd felt he might have topped that song. And um and yeah, it, it was um very special. But yeah, so we knew he had a special batch of songs, but we knew he had a killer first single in Monsters.
1: So Murmur is stoked with how Echolalia has come together. But what about the band? Clint admits having his usual self doubts about the finished product.
4: You
3: know, being in something okay and knowing and loving something okay and knowing otherwise like we're gonna fuck this up somehow because we just you know, we we don't write we write We don't write those big anthemic choruses. Stuff's in different time signatures. You know, the words are wordy. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, yeah. It's amazing that that record did what it did.
1: Stephanie also remembers having slight reservations after the Echolalia sessions, but mainly feeling that they'd collectively put their best foot forward.
5: We agonised and agonised over that record. Like we do all our records. I'm I'm not going to lie. We, you know, it's, there's nothing, um, there's nothing throw away about making something for K record. There's no sort of, ah, let's just chuck it down or whatever, you know, it's, it's all very, um, you know, um, particularly back then was, you know, we would spend so much time on every little aspect. And, um, so it was really exhausting. And, but I think that we felt like we'd, um, we'd nailed what we wanted to nail. Like, you know, there was a sense of closure,
1: Paul remembers he and Trina having a ball during the mastering process over in Los Angeles, both content that they'd done everything humanly possible to make Echolalia as perfect as it could possibly be.
0: I just remember, you know, we've made, we've made a good record that we're really happy with. You know, we've, we've made a good something for Kate record. Um, that's, you know, that's our only kind of, you know, that's enough for us. But yeah, I remember we mastered it in, in LA and, and it was really funny because Trina, you know, um, I, look, I I don't, I could be wrong in saying this, but, you know, my feeling was that, uh, you know, I don't know how many records at that time that Trina had produced and had the, you know, producer credit on, you know, herself. She had, like I said before, she had worked on, a lot of amazing records as the engineer or the mixer or you know um but i don't i don't know how many records she actually had like the, the full producer credit on uh at that time and um so my feeling is that like it was pretty she was it was exciting for her and she just really really wanted it to be you know the best that it could possibly be you know um which you know goes without saying but but she's so you know, we, her and I are quite similar, like overly analytical people and, you know, quite, um, you know, just really <laughs> intense about details. And, um, you know, we had to drive around L.A. and listen to it in the rental car and listen to it on the hotel room stereo. And then we went, Trina took us to like a Best Buy, which is, you know, what's, you know, you know what Best Buy is like, right? Like a big electronic superstore. And there's a huge wall of uh, hi-fi systems and boomboxes, and uh, and she like we spent an hour in Best Buy while she put the C the master CD um, in like all the different CD players, and so there we are in Best Buy like pretending that we're going to buy something. Uh, All the sales assistants are like, you know, can we help you or whatever, and Steph and I are kind of stalling the the sales assistants, because really Trina just wants to put this disc in every single <laughs> CD player and hear what it sounds like coming out of all the different speakers to make sure that the mastering job and the mix job that she's done is as good as it can possibly be. Um, it was very fun.
1: <laughs> so there we have it. An intense but enjoyable process of prolonged creativity has resulted in the third Sanctificate album, soon to be released as Echolalia. Or would it be released? The band are happy, their producer is happy, their label Murmur are happy, but what about Murmur's bosses, Sony Australia? Are they happy with the finished result? Here's a quick sneak peek of a part of episode four with John O'Donnell discussing playing the finished version of Echolalia's first single, Monsters, to an entire Sony Australia conference.
4: I had the finished record and we had a Sony conference where the whole company comes in and there was this, you know, I had an hour to present what's coming next on Murmur. And I would have played Silver Chair Staff and I would have played maybe Ammonia Staff or um, low was a band that we were working with then and they had a song called Teenager of the Year. But anyway, I ended our presentation with Monsters and um, I knew it was a special song. So I played the finished mix of that song And during me playing that, Dennis Hanlon stopped everything, stopped the whole playback. And in front of the whole company said who here would put their hand up and say that this is a hit single. Um, So very aggressive and challenging move um, in front of the whole company. And um, I put my hand up because I believed in this band and I believe, but of course it was a rhetorical question. Dennis knew that no one else in the room was gonna put their hand up and say this was a hit single because A, he's Dennis Hanlon and he'd asked the question in such a way that he didn't want anyone to do that. Um, and so I stood there and he, he was particularly nasty about it. He said, this record's not getting released. We're gonna put this record on the shelf because this band's not ready to step forward. And um, and we'll talk about this later, but um, we're going to need more recording done or we're going to need remixes done because this is not good enough.
1: Wow. See you for episode four, I guess. We'll end this instalment with Echolalia's fourth and final single, Say Something, released in February 2002 and rising to number 40 on the Aria Singles chart. <laughs>
6: Like space invaders What?
1: Thanks heaps to our network partner Yamaha headphones, and thanks to you for checking out the Echolalia Rewind. Check back to discover how this hot mess pans out.
7: Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network, produced by Craig Trowick and Andrew Mutt recorded and engineered by Zig Parker, theme music by Bar.